Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. That will be our sermon text for this morning, Galatians 2, 11 through 16. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you so much for your persistent grace. We thank you for your grace, which is new every morning, which uh, we can turn to you day by day, moment by moment, Sunday after Sunday. We turn to you now, Father, uh, that you would be with us, that you would help us to hear your word, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. We pray that you would take your word by your spirit and apply it to our hearts. Pray that you would uh, protect me from saying anything that is not true. That you would, uh, if, if I do say anything that's not true, that it would be quickly forgotten. And that what is true, what is of you, what is of your word, would be held on to tightly. Father, we pray that you would be glorified uh, as we hear your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Well, I have been learning recently how controlled I am by fear. Fear, I've realized, it's just a, it's a daily part of my life. Uh, fear of people's opinions, fear of deadlines, fear of not living up to my own standards, uh, fear of failure, fear of success. Uh, pretty much everything scares me, it seems like. Uh, I, I don't look afraid, right? I don't think I look afraid. I can fake confidence pretty well. Uh, but fear is a real part of my daily experience. And fear has lots of other names, doesn't it? Worry, anxiety, uh, even being controlling or angry uh, can be other manifestations of being afraid. Ultimately, everyone's afraid of something because fear is a part of human experience in a fallen world. It may seem odd to begin this sermon on, on Paul's rebuke of Peter and of uh, the central message of the gospel of, of Galatians in verses 15 to 16, justification by faith, we'll, we'll get to what that means in a minute, it may seem odd to begin uh, by talking about fear. And, and yet there it is uh, in the second verse of our passage this morning. We're told that Peter feared the circumcision party. Fear undercut the gospel's work in Peter's life, we'll see. 
Uh, in fact, there would be no Galatians 2, 11 through 14 if Peter had not been afraid. Uh, these verses just wouldn't be here because this event would not have happened. Why is that? I mean, fear is antithetical to the gospel. And by that, I mean two things. On the one hand, living in fear is, is really the opposite, or at least an opposite, of living by faith. If we are living in fear, which, again, I confess I do at times, if we're living in fear, we're not resting. We're not resting in the gospel. It doesn't matter how much we profess it, we're not resting in it. But also, living by faith is really the antidote to living in fear. Those are closely related things, but they're not quite the same, right? Living in fear is, is the opposite of living by faith, and living by faith is the antidote to living in fear, which is to say that the gospel is what empowers us to overcome fear. You can see in our outline uh, this morning, we're going to talk about some of these things. Uh, the outline is on the back of the bulletin. If you haven't found it yet, you're welcome to turn there. Uh, our, our first point on our outline is, is Peter's faithless fear. Second, we'll talk about Paul's gracious rebuke. And finally, we'll talk about our gospel-grounded acceptance. Faithless fear, gracious rebuke, and gospel acceptance. First, faithless fear. Uh, we need to set the stage. Uh, this passage talks about a man named Cephas, who is Peter. Peter was one of the twelve apostles. Uh, he walked with Jesus for three years. He, he saw Jesus die on the cross, right? He, he sees Jesus risen from the dead, and, and he sees Jesus ascend into heaven. He preaches on Pentecost, you may remember, and 3,000 people turn to Jesus in one day. He has a vision. Sometime later, we read about it a moment ago in Acts 10. He has a vision where God tells him, Do not call people unclean. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. And Peter knows what this vision means. I mean, he, he had lived his whole life as a, as a Jew. And, and ritual uncleanness or ritual cleanness was very important. One could only approach God in the tabernacle if one was, one was ritually clean. And this taught Israel. It taught Israel that some cleansing was necessary to enter into a relationship with God. But it also meant avoiding people who were not ritually clean. And so, uh, so there was a clear dividing line between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, ritually pure and ritually impure. Jesus comes along in the Gospels, and he, uh, he undermines that division, doesn't he? And he undermines it ultimately by making people clean from the inside out. And he spells that out for Peter in his vision. Peter gets the message, as you may have noticed in Acts. He gets the message he begins to interact with. He begins to relate to and eat with unclean Gentiles. Peter realizes that God shows no partiality, and therefore Peter shouldn't either. Well, Peter later on visits the church in Antioch. Uh, we see that in Galatians. And uh, in Antioch, there were many, many Gentile believers. Uh, Jew and Gentile interacted freely in the church in Antioch. It was maybe the first truly multicultural church. And Peter embraces that. But one day, some men come 
They come from James, the, the leader, uh, a leader at least, in the Jerusalem church. And when they come, Peter draws back. And the question is, why? Why does Peter draw back? Well, we mentioned it already, right? The answer is fear. Verse 12 says, fearing the circumcision party, Peter draws back. See, because of fear, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. Now, Paul calls this hypocritical because Peter knew better. He knew that God shows no partiality. He knew that there's no ethnicity, no nationality, no culture that can make one clean. But Jesus makes people clean. And yet Peter draws back out of fear. There's a, there's a great proverb uh, that tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. It's uh, Proverbs 29, 25. It's actually one of the verses I memorized early in my Christian life, as if memorizing that verse might magically free me of fear. It didn't work, but uh, it's a good verse, nevertheless, to memorize. Fear of man lays a snare, and Peter had been captured by fear. Well, why, right? What, what was Peter so afraid of? It's kind of the million-dollar question because the passage doesn't exactly tell us. Um, the passage says, Peter, fearing the circumcision. Fearing the circumcision. It actually doesn't say circumcision party. That's kind of an explanatory gloss, right? They're trying to explain what it means to Peter, fearing the circumcision. Uh, what does that mean? Well, there, there are actually two options. Uh, the first is it's maybe the more obvious one. Uh, that these men from James, they were pushing, possibly, pushing circumcision on the Gentiles and uh, on Gentile Christians. They, they are therefore the circumcision party, right, because they want the Gentiles to be circumcised. And Peter is afraid uh, of the opinion of these men from James. And these men, this view says, they judged Peter for eating with unclean Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. And Peter didn't want to be judged by these men, and so he stopped. He withdrew. He he stopped eating with the Gentiles. It's, if this is true, it's kind of a simple case of wanting to look good in the eyes of others. Peter didn't want to look bad in the eyes of these men from James, and so he, he drew back. That may not be too surprising if you know Peter. Uh, you may remember Peter at the trial of Jesus. He's sitting outside uh, the trial, and he denies that he knows Jesus three times. Why does Peter deny that he knows Jesus three times? Maybe because he's afraid. He's afraid of, of being associated with Jesus at that point. Well, here he's afraid again. He's afraid of what uh, these men from James might think of him, afraid of their judgment upon him. There's actually another view, though. The other view says uh, that the men who came from James themselves are not the problem. But they reported on the uh, persecution happening in Jerusalem by Jewish non-Christians, right? In that case, the circumcision simply means Jewish people. Right? But in this case, uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem who happened to be persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. And they were persecuting Jewish Christians because those Jewish Christians accepted unclean Gentiles into their midst. And the idea then would be uh, if the thought process in Peter's mind, right, if, if I want the Jerusalem church to stop being persecuted by uh, the Jewish people around, uh, then we need to stop associating with unclean people. We need to prove that Christianity doesn't destroy Judaism. So we need to back off from the Gentiles in our midst. 
So maybe Peter is afraid of, of Jewish Christians who are pushing the requirements of circumcision. Uh, that's normally the, the way it's taken. That's possible. Maybe he's afraid of, of Jews who are persecuting Jewish Christians who associated with unclean Gentiles. Of course, either way, the fear is of being rejected by men. Peter is afraid of rejection. He's afraid of the consequences of rejection. If, if I'm rejected by this group of people, maybe they will shame me. If it's the, the Jewish Christians, maybe they'll shame me. Or maybe they'll put me or other Christians to death. But either way, fear of rejection had taken hold of Peter's heart. And, and there's something profound here that we need to notice. Uh, what was the result of this fear taking hold? The result was that Peter withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. Fear of rejection by men led to rejection of men, right? The fear of rejection by men led to rejection of men. If I want to be in with you, right? If I want to be on your in crowd and, and you have a standard of what that looks like, I not only have to meet that standard myself, but I also have to reject those who don't. Peter is afraid, right? He's afraid of what people thought of him. He's afraid of being rejected by others. And as a result, Peter, on some level, rejected the Gentile church. He stopped eating with them. He removed himself from them. It might have been subtle, right? I mean, Peter didn't necessarily announce to the Gentiles that he was rejecting them. Hear ye, hear ye, right? Henceforth, all Gentiles, right? Don't touch me. No, he, he, didn't, he didn't do that. But you can imagine the Gentile Christians kind of sitting around the lunch table one day and, and say, hey, has anybody seen Peter recently, right? What, what's happened to Peter? I mean, why isn't he coming around anymore? I miss the discussions we used to have around the table. Somebody says, oh, Peter, uh, he, he doesn't eat with the likes of us anymore. He thinks he's too good for us, right? Oh, oh why is that, right? What's going on? Well, well, because we're Gentiles. See, the fear of rejection by other people had led to the rejection of other people. And I, and I wonder, uh, first, you know, where you might be afraid where you might fear a, a rejection, right? Are, are you afraid of what people might think of you or do to you? Has the fear of man gripped your heart? But second, I wonder if there are times when the fear of people so grips our hearts that we actually reject or disassociate ourselves from others, not, not because they've rejected the gospel, but because they're, they're culturally uncouth or, or they're theologically weak or they're ethnically or educationally or economically different. You know, what causes you to, to, on the one hand, look down your nose on other people or maybe worse, when those around you look down their nose on other people, do you join in for fear that they may look down their nose on you? Does that, does that make sense, what's going on, right? What kind of in-crowds do we have? And are we trying to get into... And notice how Paul responds in Paul's gracious rebuke. Paul doesn't say, quit it, Peter, right? Peter, you're acting like a racist, right? Stop rejecting the Gentiles because they're Gentiles. He doesn't say, Peter, you're, you're rejecting God's law to accept other people. He doesn't say, you were there, Peter, when Jesus declared all foods clean by implication all people. Peter, you should know better. Paul could bring the hammer down, right? But he, he doesn't, actually. What does he tell us? Verse 14, Paul says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
Paul doesn't say, look, Peter, this is an issue of, of right and wrong. This is an issue of the law, and you are not living up to the law. It's not what he says. Paul says, this is an issue of the gospel, and you are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. What's, what's the difference? Well, if Peter had just laid down the law, you know, he said, look, uh, or if Paul had just laid down the law and said, uh, look, Peter, don't be a racist, right? Don't, don't judge the Gentiles because they're Gentiles. God shows no partiality. You shouldn't either. That would be true. And, you know, there, there are actually times to do that. But that would not have addressed the, the spiritual root of sin in Peter's heart. It would not have addressed Peter's fear. It would not have addressed Peter's unbelief. I mean, you can lay down the law on people all you want, right? You can tell them the right way to live. You can rebuke them for living the wrong way. You can correct them and exhort them and reprimand them and shame them. But that won't work because it won't deal with the root of their sin. And the worst, actually, would be shame. Why? Well, because sometimes shame does work. Shame might have worked on Peter. He was afraid of rejection, after all. And so if you shame him, he might change his behavior once again because he was afraid of rejection by you. But you would have left his fearful, unbelieving heart intact. In fact, you might have strengthened the hold that fear and unbelief have on him by, a feeling, by appealing to them. Shame and guilt and laying down the law, even if it did change Peter's behavior, it would not have changed Peter's heart. And so Paul rebukes Peter. He does rebuke Peter. Right? Don't misunderstand. He rebukes him publicly and personally. Uh, verse 11 says Paul opposed Peter to his face. Verse 14 says Paul addressed Peter before them all. Right? Publicly and personally, he rebukes him. But what Paul does is he points Peter to his inconsistency in living in accord with the gospel. Paul says again in verse 14, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And what Paul is saying is, Peter, I, I know you don't keep the whole Mosaic law. I, I know you've spent time with the unclean. In fact, uh, the passage we read earlier in Acts uh, chapter 10, one of the, the most overlooked details of that chapter is that Peter had been staying with Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner, which kind of seems irrelevant to us. But a tanner, what does a tanner do? He deals with leather all day long. He deals with dead animals all day long, which means according to the Jewish law, he would have been unclean. So Peter was actually already living with an unclean person in Acts chapter 10 before he went to the Gentiles. Peter wasn't living like a Jew. He was living like a Gentile. He wasn't keeping the law for himself half the time. So Paul says, I know you spent time with unclean people. I know, you, you, I know that you know your freedom in the gospel. Why won't you let these Gentiles live out their freedom in the gospel? And he points out the inconsistency to get Peter to look at the heart, at, at his own heart, and to question his own motives, right? How can you do this, Paul asks? What is causing you to act hypocritically, to not walk in step with the truth of the gospel? And of course, the root of Peter's behavior, the root of drawing back, the root of rejecting the Gentiles was Peter's fear and his unbelief. Peter was walking inconsistently with his profession of the gospel. And the truth is, this is where most of us live most of the time. 
Right? I mean, if you took a video of a recording of my daily life, just one day, any day, and then we sat down together at the end of the day to watch it, we would watch a little bit and you would stop the tape or pause the video or whatever, and you would say, Luke, I, I thought you believed the gospel. I thought you believed in God's love and God's patience and God's acceptance. And I would say, yeah, of course, I, I believe those things. And then you would say, but then why did you do this? Right? Uh, why did you yell at your boys here? Uh, why, why won't you forgive this person there? Uh, Luke, you, you don't seem to be very loving over here. And maybe for you, it would be completely different things, right? Uh, for, for men who are trapped in porn or, or women who are depressed because they want to be married, right? You might say, well, I thought you believed that God was your real satisfaction and joy, not these other things. Or the businessman who, who overcharges his customers. You might say, I thought you believed that God would provide for all your needs. Why are you doing these things? You know, whatever it is, whatever our sin Right? Sin for the Christian is always living inconsistently with the gospel that we profess. And my point is not to shame us, right? but to point out that there is this inconsistency. That our confessional theology, right? the theology that we, that we say, that we speak, that we confess, our confessional theology is not always the same as our functional theology. And, and so much of, of growing in the Christian life is about the truths, uh, growing in the truths that we already know. We already believe them, and yet they have to sink more deeply into our hearts, working themselves out more fully in our lives. And so part of Paul's rebuke is he's just pointing out the inconsistency. Look, there's a disconnect here in your life. But the other part is pointing Peter back to the gospel. Which brings us to uh, the last point on gospel acceptance. It, it, it's kind of hard to know, actually, where Peter's speech ends, uh, where Paul's speech to Peter ends, and his address to the Galatians begins. Uh, so verses 15 and 16, they, they could be a continuation of Peter's speech, of Paul's speech, sorry, Paul's speech to Peter. But it also could be an address to the Galatians in light of that speech. Whatever the case, Paul now turns to what is really the heart of the gospel. Uh, verses 15 and 16 is, is in some ways also the heart of Peter's letter, uh, Paul's letter, because like, it's, it's like Paul's thesis statement for the book of Galatians. Uh, verses 15 and 16 say this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, those two, two verses require at least some definitions. Um, the, the word justified, first of all, the word justified or justify. Uh, we actually use that term all the time. Uh, what, what does it mean to justify something? Uh, you know, you hear it on the news sometime, sometimes, right? Like, in an attempt to justify himself, such and such a politician said this, right? What does that mean, in an attempt to justify himself, right? Justification, to, to justify, it's, it's a legal term, really, meaning to declare righteous. To declare someone is in the right. To justify is the opposite of condemn, right? It, it, it's more than innocent, uh, it, it means to be positively on the right side of the law, to justify, to, to, uh, to be justified. 
To put it differently, to be justified is to, is to be declared in the right, and so is to be declared acceptable or accepted in the eyes of the law. To be acceptable or accepted. Uh, acceptance is, is a big deal for us, right? Justification is God's declaration that you have been accepted in Christ. Think about how that relates to Peter's fear, right? Peter's fear is of being rejected. Being justified is about being accepted. And so Paul points this out to him. Our acceptance, Peter, here's where it's found, not, not in the law. And Paul is saying, Peter, you're afraid of being rejected. Let, re let me remind you about your acceptance. So he says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Uh, we, we are God's people, he says, who've been given the Mosaic law. That's who we are, you and me, Peter. We're God's people who've been given the Mosaic law. And yet, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay, what does that phrase mean? The phrase works of the law. Uh, works of the law are, are works done in obedience to or in accordance with the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Uh, works of the law aren't bad. That's, uh, we sometimes miss this point. Uh, Paul is not saying the works of the law here are bad. He's not saying it's wrong to obey the law of Moses in and of itself. But he says at, at, the, at the end of the verse, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? Works of the law aren't bad. They're just powerless, powerless to make one right with God. The works of the law cannot make you acceptable or accepted with God. Now, if that is the way we are accepted uh, by God, if, 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 if it were by the works of the law, then everyone would have to become Jewish, right, to take on the Mosaic law. And then acceptance would be dependent upon our performance. How well have I lived up to this law? If justification, if being right, if being accepted by God is dependent upon the works of the Mosaic Law, then they are dependent ultimately upon your own performance of those works. Well, you, you read through the scriptures, right? You know Adam failed to keep just one law given to him, and he was exiled from the garden. Uh, Israel failed to keep the 613 laws given to them, and they were exiled out of Israel into Babylon. The, the history of Israel is really a history, among other things, demonstrating that the law is a dead end in terms of acceptance. And so Paul, at the end of verse 16, he, he creatively quotes Psalm 143, verse 2. Psalm 143, verse 2 says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is justified before you. David, who wrote this psalm, says, Don't judge me, God, because I know that no one is righteous before you. And David had the law. He, he obeyed God's law. What that means is David knew that the law did not justify. He said, no one is righteous. No one is justified before you. He didn't say no one is justified except those who have the law. Paul quotes that verse out of Psalm 143 uh, to make, and makes it explicit as if to say, look, even by works of the law, no one will be justified. Even if you obey the Mosaic law, you won't be right with God through that. And so no one is accepted by God because they keep the law of Moses. God gave the law of Moses, of course. So if, if any law could make you accepted by God, it would be that one. If this law could not justify, then, then no law can. Right? If, if you can't be right with God by obeying God's law, you certainly can't be right with God by obeying your own. 
You see how that works, right? If the divine law can't make you right with God, a man-made law, of course, won't do any better. And think about it. You know, what do you do? What do you do that, uh, to try to be acceptable or accepted by God or by men? Where do you try to prove your worthiness? Where do you try to prove your righteousness? What do you do that makes you feel good about yourself, that makes you feel that now God can accept you, now people might accept you? Maybe you try to, to look the right way, whatever that is, or, or to have the right political views, whatever they are, to dress the right way, or talk the right way, or have the right education, or have the right home in the right neighborhood, cleaned just the right way, whatever it is. Whatever standard you adopt to make yourself acceptable, to make yourself righteous before God, it is either God's standard or, or a man-made standard. If it's God's, Paul says here, by works of the law, by works of God's law, no one will be justified. If it's man's standard, why would you think that a man-made law will succeed in doing what God's law through Moses could not? So verse 16 again, verse 16 says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What is it that justifies? What is it that makes us right with our Father? What is it that makes us acceptable and accepted? Uh, th there are actually two options here, believe it or not. Um, and I I'll mention both because they both have, have merit in terms of understanding this verse. Option one is, maybe the most obvious, faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's what it says. Uh, it says, uh, no one is justified, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what Paul says. And so we, in that view, we're righteous with our Father through faith in someone else. And hence, this, this is why Paul goes on to say, so we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So option one, uh, when it says through faith in Jesus Christ, it means we're justified, we're made right, we're made acceptable with the Father through believing in the person and work of Jesus' Son. There's actually an option too, though. Similar, but there's a slight difference. Uh, the King James Version, I don't know if any of you are reading the King James Version this morning, but the King James Version translates it a little bit differently. The King James translates this verse uh, this way. It talks about not faith in Jesus Christ, but the faith of Jesus Christ which is kind of an odd thing to say, the faith of Jesus Christ. It's a legitimate translation. Well, what would that mean? Uh, some have understood this phrase to mean uh, the, the faithfulness, which again, that's a, a legitimate way to understand the word, the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. By what are we justified? Not by works of the Mosaic law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus. By, by his obedience, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. That's that's, what we, that's uh, what we are justified by. And if this is a proper understanding, what Paul is saying is, is look, you're, you're not accepted by works of the law. You are accepted by the faithfulness of Jesus. You're not accepted by your performance. You are accepted by the performance of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh who lived a perfect life, who himself perfectly obeyed the Father in all things. He died for our sins in, in obedience to the Father. He was raised from the dead. He was vindicated by his resurrection. And we are accepted by God, not because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus did. How does what 
Jesus did then apply to me? Well, Paul goes on to say, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ, if you take it that way, and not by works of the law. And so faith, our faith is still involved, belief is still involved, but the emphasis of this verse then, if taken this way, is not on our faith, but it's on Christ's faithfulness. It's not on what we do, but on what Christ did. There are a couple of other passages that can be taken this way, uh, just in case you're curious to look. Two uh, would still connect our faith, our believing, to Christ's faithfulness. So Galatians 3.22, later on in Galatians, we read, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise, again, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Right? So in this case, Paul's not just being redundant. He's not saying the promise by faith in Christ is given to those who believe. He's saying the promise by the faithfulness of Christ is given to those who believe. Uh, so he's talking about the promise by faith being given to those who believe. He's talking about two, two different realities. The faithfulness of Jesus on the one hand, given to us who believe on the other. Romans 3.22 has actually the same kind of contrast. It says, God's righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus is for all who believe. So one possibility here, Paul is saying, we're justified by, by, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. The other possibility says we're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ given to all who believe. Now, if you're wondering what the difference is, uh, of course, in the end, the practical theological difference is none. They're the same, right? Either way, uh, we're justified by believing in what Jesus did. It's just a matter of how this verse is spelling that out. Here, the main point, though, is our acceptance comes through believing in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus lived, he died, he rose for us, he was rejected on the cross that we might be accepted in him. And I want you to think about what that does to the fear of rejection. Paul confronts Peter and he says, Peter, you're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, your acceptance is through faith in Jesus. Your acceptability, your righteousness is not in your adherence to the Mosaic law. It's not in your performance. It's not in how well you live up. It's not in how much money you make, right? It's not in the clothes that you wear or the grades that you get. Your acceptance is in Christ. Why are you living as if your acceptance is in performance? Why are you living as if your acceptance were in the law? And notice Peter, Peter uh, Paul is not shaming Peter. Shame is actually a form of rejection itself, right? But he's pointing Peter back to the gospel, back to his acceptance, back to Jesus, right? Peter, you know, our acceptance is in him and not in what we do. Here is what can actually change Peter's behavior. When the gospel of acceptance in Jesus sinks deeply into our hearts till we can say with Paul elsewhere, uh, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? If I so know God's acceptance of me, I don't need to worry about people out there. If God is for me, who can be against me? Uh, we can say with David elsewhere in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is my light. I don't need to fear anyone. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid, David says. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And he's confident because his God is for him. He doesn't need to be afraid. 
I mentioned Psalm 29, 25 earlier. The, the whole verse actually says this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, I don't need to be afraid of men. I don't need to be afraid of circumstances, of deadlines, of failure or success if I'm trusting in my God. Right? And that's true generally. Uh, it's also true specifically in the case of rejection by people. If God accepts me, if God loves me, if God receives me, I don't need to worry about the rejection of men. God is on my side. Right? Whatever happens will work out for my good and be to his glory. I can trust him because he has accepted me in his son. Here's where this leads, right? We said a, a moment ago that uh, fear of rejection by men often leads to the rejection of men, right? If you fear reject, being rejected by certain people, you're probably going to end up rejecting other people. Uh, Peter is afraid of rejection, whether of Jewish people in general or of Jewish Christians in particular, and so he rejects the Gentiles as if they were unclean. The opposite should also be true. Acceptance by God should lead to acceptance of others. That's why Paul says in Romans, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And this is especially applies to Christians, right? To fellow Christians, fellow believers with whom we have cultural differences or disagree theologically or whatever. We should welcome them nevertheless as God in Christ has welcomed us. It applies to non-Christians as well, though. Uh, we're free to accept people for who they are. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree with them. It doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel with them. It just means our friendship, our acceptance of, of them as a person does not depend on whether they agree with us. You know, you can be friends with people you disagree with. Maybe that's not rocket science or anything new, but, but it's true. We can, we can be friends. We can receive and accept people even when we widely disagree on things. We are free to accept people, right, with, with all of their cultural, national, ethnic, economic, educational, gender, stylistic, political differences, right? And if they're Christians, we accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're not Christians, we can accept them as friends. Either way, we show them the same acceptance that Christ has shown to us. And in so doing, we actually demonstrate the gospel. We live it out by the way that we live. We have been accepted by God not because we're, we're cool or smart or pretty or funny, not because we have the right nationality or ethnicity or culture, not because we have the right worship music or the best theology or the coolest people at our church. If any of these were true, if we were accepted based on those things, our lives actually would be lives of fear because fear that somebody cooler or smarter or prettier or funnier might come along and God might dump us for the next person or something like that, right? Uh, but no, God, God knew exactly who we were when he accepted us in the first place. There's no surprises here. It's not like dating. You know, when you're dating someone, you're always trying to put up uh, uh, your best foot forward. You're trying to show people the, the best face so that they will like you, right? Um, God actually knows you, <laughs> all of you, right? He knows the worst of you, and he has accepted you anyway because of his son Jesus, we have been accepted on account of the faithfulness of Jesus as we believe in him and are united to him by faith. That means no more fear, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul says elsewhere, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Right? God is for us. No more fear. I know that seems unrealistic, right? I started out saying how often I get afraid. I know that seems unrealistic. But when I'm afraid, David says, I will trust in you. That's where we need to live. 
Uh, let, let fear, right, not, not drive you to performance and uh, rejection. Let fear drive you to the cross. Let your fear drive you to God where you find that God has accepted you and now cares for you as his child. Because right? the fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts to you, uh, that when we are afraid, we would trust in you. We would turn to you. We would find a refuge in you. We would find that you are our God who cares for us. Father, help us to, to rest in that fact, delight in that fact, have joy in that fact. We pray that it would work deeply into our hearts, that we would know, not just in our heads, but that we would know deeply that we have been accepted through your son Jesus, through his work on our behalf. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.